musicians for leading us to worship our great God. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, I encourage you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Job. The Old Testament book of Job, chapter 19. We're going to look at just a a few brief verses in one of Job's responses to his friends in Job chapter 19. We're continuing in a year-long series uh, through the book. We're walking all the way through Scripture chronologically. And as we do, we're looking and considering various threads of, of theme. And one of those on Wednesdays is the theme of redemption. We're looking at how redemption plays all the way through Scripture. And as we are considering this together, I I want you to just continue to fix your gaze on the author of the story. Because as we look at the Bible, there is one story. And the name of that story is redemption. And the hero of that story is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Redeemer. And as we look together at this book of Job and see the suffering of this servant of God, we begin to see some lessons that I hope will fit into our lives. Now, hopefully by now you've gotten to the book of Job in in the Old Testament. As you turn there, I want to say just a quick personal word of thanks. A very, very special word of thanks to our associate pastors, Joe Gunter and Scott Alexander. In our absence over the past week, uh, Joe preached last Sunday, and then he and Scott both preached on Wednesday. Did an incredible job. I I got to hear uh, a lot of report from both of them, and I'm so grateful for these men of God being able to capably take the Word of God and share it with you. Um, Just a, a word of report, Stephanie and I and Heidi... Uh, we're given an incredible gift that afforded us the opportunity to go on a cruise. And so we went last week. We, we had just a couple of days to say yes or no to it. And so we uh, prayed about it and said yes very quickly and went. Um, I had several people this morning asking. They said, Pastor, you don't look very tan. And I said, well, in my case, it's burn, peel, repeat. Burn, peel, repeat. That's how I operate. There's not much tanning that goes on. I, I do want to say this. I had to come home. I know you won't feel sorry for me at all, but I, I had to come home to get a little rest. Family vacation and relaxing vacation don't necessarily always go together. Heidi Hanbury looked at the day's itinerary on that cruise ship and did not want to miss one single activity from daylight till dawn. And so we went from daylight until dawn, but we made incredible memories, had a great, great time there. Thank you for giving us the time away allowing us to be a part of that. I'm going to weave a little bit of the story together in just a bit. It was a K-Love cruise, and so if you listen to Christian radio, there were a lot of the Christian artists there, uh, an incredible time of worship, very different from other cruise experiences in that everywhere you went, there are the songs of our Savior, and just a, a magnificent time of starting and finishing your day, worshiping the Lord. Um, You know, a couple of other thoughts. It was 27 degrees here on one of those days. It was about 80 there. Again, I know you don't feel sorry for me. And on Thursday morning, the first morning I woke up, I rolled over to pick up my phone and call room service and order breakfast. And that line had been disconnected. It no longer worked from my bedroom at home as it had on the cruise ship. Job chapter 19 now I'm going to go from talking about being on a cruise ship to talk about suffering and you're saying he has nothing to say to me this morning but the word of God does speak to our place Job 19 beginning in verse 25 but as for me I know that my redeemer lives and he will stand upon the earth at last and after my body has decayed yet in my body I will see God 
I will see him for myself. Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. And Job concluded by saying, I am overwhelmed at this thought. I want you to read that sentence with me, that last one. I am overwhelmed at the thought. I I don't know if you've given it much thought. Job, one of the oldest books of antiquity, one of the oldest books that we understand, written in the patriarchal period of time, uh, focused around the time of Abraham. Perhaps Job was a contemporary of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, in that time frame. So a very, very early understanding of God. And yet Job spoke of God in terms that we are very familiar with, the terms of redemption. And as he thought about God, and as he thought about the last days, not the current situation of his life, not the the suffering and the struggle and the pain of loss that he uh, had experienced. If you're familiar at all with the story, you know that Job faced an unbelievable series of, of, uh, it's hard to even call them unfortunate events, tragedies. He lost his children. He lost all of his livestock and his wealth, and he lost all of his possessions, and then his health was taken away from him, and he sat in in ashes and in dust, scraping sores off of his body, struggling. And then his friends come along, and they heap insult upon injury and say, surely it's because you've sinned, because you are a sinner and you're continuing to sin, that God has allowed all of this calamity to become Uh, part of your experience. And yet we see Job here speaking of God as a redeemer. We see him speaking of God in terms familiar to us because of our understanding of the cross of Christ and because of the promises of God that he will come again. And we're going to look at those promises, but I want us to look at this entire lens through what Job knew. You see, Job didn't know very much. He didn't have all of the the scripture that we have. He didn't have centuries of church experience that we have. He didn't have the the picture of saints that have gone on before that have preached amazing sermons. He didn't have gathered times of Sunday school. But he said, here's what I do know. And when he said, here's what I do know, the things that Job knew are the most important things for us to know. And so today I want us to look at this through a very, very particular lens. You know, all of us in life have suffered. Can I get an amen anywhere in this room? Anybody here suffered loss, hardship, pain, struggle, difficulty, grief? All of us have suffered. And when pain comes into our lives, there is this immediate sense of struggle at times with questions. Why is this happening to me? Why has the Lord allowed this to happen? God, are you punishing me for something? Lord, where are you in the middle of all of my struggle? Maybe you've asked those questions in the past, or maybe you walked in this place today and you're asking those very questions today. Maybe you're struggling through some relational difficulty and you find yourself wishing for better days or even wishing that you are not alive. You know, it's interesting, in the culture that we live in, the generation that is now rising is the most over-medicated, over-depressed, and the most suicidal generation that we have known in modern history. There's an epidemic tragedy that is going on. People are suffering, and in the midst of their suffering, they find themselves in places that they would call hopeless. 
dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to be able to say with Job, I don't know much, but here's what I do know. That's the message of today's, uh, that's the title of today's message, and that's the theme of where we want to go. What is it that Job knew? What is it that, that helped him through the struggle of his life? And I want you to see that one of the greatest struggles of our human existence is the question, why? Job's life prompts the common question, why do bad things happen to good people? Job never got answers to all of his questions, but he did find that when life falls apart, there's far, far better something to look for than a silver lining. It's the path of obedience. And when we, in simple faith, trust the Lord, even in the midst of our suffering, all of a sudden our pain becomes focused with purpose. I've said that to you a couple of times, even in our last several sermons, as we talked about the life of Joseph, a man who seemed to suffer needlessly, and yet God used it. He ordained it. I shared with our Sunday school class something that's not in your notes. I want you to jot down the title of a book. We've mentioned it a couple of times before, but it's 10 Dumb Things That Smart Christians Believe. Now, don't be insulted. I didn't say it's for dumb Christians. I said it's dumb things that smart Christians believe. Larry Osborne is the author of that book, and I want to encourage you to get a copy of it because one chapter in particular deals with this very subject. And the myth that he brings up that we often perpetuate is this, everything happens for a reason. And oftentimes we try to pinpoint the reason. We take the, the book of Romans, eight. Uh, the 8th chapter, the 28th verse, which says that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And we take that to mean that God causes everything that happens in our lives and that God somehow is divinely orchestrating even those bad things. And, and Osborne goes to, uh, to the place of debunking that spiritual myth, if you will, by saying there are some things that happen to us that are self-inflicted. I know I can get an amen there. I have done stupid with zeros on me, aggressive stupidity at times. And I've paid for stupid things that I've done. I've paid for poor choices and bad decisions and wrong-filled actions. I've paid for those. Sometimes it's because of the sin of someone else. A, A drunk driver crosses the center line of the median and kills a family. And we say, why, God? Well, it's because of bad choices. God didn't orchestrate those things, and yet what we understand in a clearer perspective of Romans 8.28 is this, that no matter what befalls us, God's ultimate plans will come to pass. That God is sovereignly in control, and that He is guiding us somewhere. And that's where Job could say, I don't know much, but here's what I do know. He said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I know that I shall see Him in the end, that He will stand upon the earth. And even after my body is decayed, look at this. He says, in my body I shall see Him. What an incredible revelation to us who understand some things about the end times, who understand some things about the rapture of the church and the calling out of God's people of all ages, the redeemed that will stand before Him and with Him in glorified, resurrected bodies. And the hope and the promise of that resurrection ought to bring to us such comfort and such joy and such power and confidence in life that it changes everything. Got back into cell service 
on Wednesday morning, about 6 o'clock, we were in the port of Miami, and I turned my phone on and, and uh, used it as a neck massage because for about the next 10 minutes, bzz, 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 it just started buzzing. Text and phone calls and notifications, and in the midst of that was one of our precious church members who called to say that her husband had gone home to be with the Lord and asked if I would do the service. So I returned on Thursday, and on Friday we said goodbye to a church member, a godly man who loved the Lord, passionate, never dreamed that he would wake on Tuesday morning and then wake in heaven Tuesday night. But we have an understanding that gives to us confidence and hope and joy. And if you're not living in that place, if you're one of this generation, regardless your age, in this era of time, if you find yourself struggling and suffering and, and even contemplating hopelessness, you need to understand that Job knew something that you need to know. There is hope because of a Redeemer. Amen? And as we look at this together, we will see some powerful truths. I want you to understand this, that for me, some of the greatest sermons I've ever heard preached were not preached from pulpits, but from sick beds. They were preached from people who gave the greatest and deepest understanding of the truth of God's Word, from people who preached not as a result of seminary preparation, but the seminary of affliction. I have a dear friend who has gone on to be with the Lord. He was diagnosed very young with young children with ALS. And I'll never forget as that disease began to progress or digress as it, as it were. And he was trapped in a body that would no longer work. He, he said to me one day, I feel like I've won the lottery. And I was so confused by that. He, he said, now I have nothing but time on my hands and the opportunity to study the Word of God and to pray and to spend time with my precious Savior with whom I will spend all eternity. That's not an understanding that most of us get to through pillows of prosperity, but through the crucible of suffering. And Job, through his circumstances, confined to a place of suffering, Learn to depend upon God as only such Christians who have been in those dark places can do. Now, I don't want to belabor the point of suffering. I don't want to walk through that too far because I don't want to be depressing in this. Two key themes emerge in this book. One is suffering and the other is sanctification. It's growing in our maturity. It's learning to understand who God is and what God is like. You see, one of the most valuable things that you and I can learn in this life is to have a fresh perspective of God. And in the midst of our dark days, a fresh vision of God will give to us clarity and perspective and proportion on everything else. When I see how great my God is, I see how small and finite and temporary my problems are. I see that even the evil that seems so rampant is on a short leash. That God has the devil himself on a short-reigned leash because he is in control. And he will make all things that are unjust and wrong right one day. A proper perspective of God. So as I consider suffering and I consider sanctification, what I'm asking our church family to do as we walk through the Word is grow in your understanding of God. 
That's what Job speaks of. He didn't speak, I know why this is happening to me. He didn't get those answers. He didn't say, well, I know why uh, God has allowed this or where these things are happening. But here's the focus that I want us to get. You know, sometimes we begin to look and we, we want instant judgment over wrong. I had a friend that told me that not long ago. I wish God would just wipe out all evil. And I said, step back for a moment. Because I play a part in that. If God were to wipe out all evil, if God were to give us what we deserve rightly today, we would breathe our last breath and die and spend a Christless eternity separated from His love and His holiness. Fortunately for us, God worked out another plan. You see, think about this. If evil was immediately judged and and sin would not be held back, then the earth would long ago have been destroyed. But in that case, neither would there be any redemption. The merciful plan of God is that he has delayed judgment. In fact, let me give you two statements I want you to see very clearly. Number one, God does not immediately judge us. For then we would all be wiped out and there would be no redemption. But let me give you the other side. God does not immediately bless the righteous because he has greater plans that can be implemented through pain and suffering. That's hard truth, but it's truth. There are things that go on in our lives. There are things that come into our existence. And when they do, in, in filtered through the sovereign hand of God, they are producing in us a hunger and a faith in the promises that are to come. And Job understood that clearly. He said, I may not know much, but here's what I do know. So I want us to look together at what God has let Job know. And by the way, I I don't have the time nor the occasion this morning to speak directly to this matter of suffering. I've preached on it in the past, but one of the very best treatments I've ever seen came through Radio Bible Ministry and Martin DeHaan. And I put it on our website, and I put a couple of articles there. I want to encourage you, go to hardysbc.net and then slash God and Suffering. You may want to write that down. You're not going to find a button on the homepage or any other place to find it. You have to type that in. HardySBC.net slash God and Suffering. I want to encourage you to go there. And this week, contemplate the purpose for pain. Contemplate this. I I will pull over to the side for just a moment and speak to it. One of the very first prayers I ever learned in my life came from my grandmother. Her name was Gladys. Gladys was 96 years old when she died. And Gladys taught us to fold our hands and to bow our heads and to say, I bet you know the prayer. God is great and God is good. And while we're here and we know there's Chinese food coming, we'll go ahead and say the rest. Let us thank him for our food. Did it ever strike you as curious that it doesn't rhyme? I think it was supposed to, but you've got good and food. I don't know. That's just weird to me. I've heard people that tried to make it rhyme. But nevertheless, God is great. God is good. And I didn't understand fully as a young boy the the implications theologically of those two statements. But here's the the thought, and I've shared this before. But people struggle with the Christian faith, and they struggle with the existence of God and the goodness of God because of these three things existing. How can God be great if suffering exists? He must not be able to take out suffering. Or if God is good and suffering exists, he must not, or that's the case. If God is good, he must not be powerful enough to handle suffering. If God is able and it still exists, he must not be good. 
that's cynical and cruel that he could do something about it, but he doesn't. And people struggle with that. So that website hopefully will help give you some thoughts about why evil can exist. You see, God doesn't immediately judge all evil. He deals with us mercifully, not in accordance to our sin, but according to His loving kindness. The Bible says that through the psalmist. He said if, if He deals with us mercifully, it's that He delays that judgment and ultimately he sends that judgment upon Christ. You see, God has already judged all of our sin. It's now a matter of appropriation. Will you receive his payment for your sin? Jesus Christ became the lightning rod of God on the cross, and he overcame death, and he overcame hell, and he overcame the grave. He died so that you would not have to. All of your sins will be judged there at the cross, isn't that amazing? They'll be judged there at the cross if you trust Christ and you're there. But we'll be judged. You'll meet him as Savior in this life or you'll meet him as judge in the next. Let's consider this. God will always judge sin. He will always bless righteousness is the mindset of Job's friends. And if you somehow are being judged, then you have sinned. And the mindset there needs to be broken. That sometimes the godliest people go through the most difficult trials. And sometimes the most godless people are blessed upon this earth and yet we know their day is coming. Now up till this point in scripture, Job has been sort of a gloomy Gus. He, he's, he's battled with his friends and tried to defend himself and he's had little pity parties here and there and, and it may seem even understandable. His wife gives him satanic advice. Satan says in the early stages of the book, if you take the hedge of protection away from him, he will curse you to your face, God. And then his wife comes along and says, why don't you just curse God and die? She suggested the very thing that the devil said would happen. Kind of interesting. When life is rough and you feel defeated, there are some sure facts that can bring you out of the midst of that storm. I don't know much, but this is what I do know. I want to give you three thoughts. Number one, Joe said this, I know there's a Redeemer. I know there is a Redeemer. I also want to say about this, regarding this text of Scripture, two thoughts. This notion of a Redeemer for Job was personal and powerful. It is personal and powerful. He didn't say, I know that there is a Redeemer. What does he say? This is audience participation time. What does the text of Scripture say? I know that my Redeemer lives. It was personal to Job. He said, it's my Redeemer. It's the one with whom I have a relationship. While most of the other religions of the world believe that God is impersonal, uh, this being who is, is out there somewhere and capricious, the God who is revealed in the Bible is a personal God. And this means that he has the characteristics of a person. I love this when we begin to think about the characteristics. One commentator said it this way. The Bible designates God as a living God, much like a person, a, rash, a rational being, conscience of his existence. As the living God, he possesses attributes of a person. From Among other things, he can love, he can express anger, he can show mercy. The Bible says that God has a will and intellect. 
All these characteristics are consistent with personhood. Furthermore, the Bible contrasts the personal living God with impersonal idols that are mere things. We conclude the Bible clearly teaches that God is personal. And Job didn't have all the privilege of all the Bible, but he said, I don't know much, but this I do know. I know my Redeemer lives. This is powerful language. As you look at the relationship between God and Job, the same Hebrew word is used for know that is used for intimacy between a man and a woman. It is an intimate knowledge. I am fully acquainted with God. I know God. I want you to see that there is such significance to that in the picture of of how powerful it is. It's life-changing. I would say it this way. You can't drink from this well and remain the same. I know him and he knows me. He knows me and he still loves me. I'll borrow the line of one of the artists that sang this week. To be fully known and loved by God is hard truth. It's difficult to think that God knows everything you've ever thought. But it's coupled with this, it's hard truth and ridiculous grace to be fully known and fully loved by God. And that's what Job was saying, this personal, powerful knowledge, I know my Redeemer lives. I I love that. I heard a fantastic story not long ago, and it was about an old Baptist preacher. His daughter, Alice, told the story, and she told it with her South Georgia accent. And she said, my daddy was a preacher, a Baptist preacher, and he would baptize anything that could get his hands on. He, he said he'd baptize a Catholic, a Presbyterian, a Methodist. He said he even tried to baptize the old dog that stood out, front, out in front of the church. And somebody asked the question, Preacher, why are you trying to baptize that dog? He ain't done nothing wrong. And Alice's daddy said this, you just got to be sure. I have to agree with Alice's daddy. You got to be sure. And Job was sure. Job said, I know my Redeemer lives. Some 13 years ago, I sat right there. Second pew, right there. My father was healed in a casket. My father's favorite verse in all of the Bible was Job 19, 25. I know my Redeemer lives. I had one of the most amazing experiences this week I've probably ever had in my life. This may be the reason that we were afforded the gift to go on this cruise. At that service, a family member sang a song by Nicole C. Mullen. Maybe you know it. It's just based on this text of Scripture. Who told the ocean you can only come this far? Who told the moon where to hide till evening? And the, the, the chorus of the song is, I know my Redeemer lives. Well, we were on the ship, and we were walking through one of the areas. Heidi and I had just gotten off an elevator, and Nicole C. Mullen was standing there. And, and so we walked up and asked if we could take a picture with her, and Heidi got to greet her, and we talked for a moment, and I said, I, I have to take just a, a quick point of personal privilege. I said, my dad went home to be with the Lord a few years ago, and when he did, that, that was his favorite verse, and we had your song sung at that funeral. And she stopped and she hugged me and she hugged Heidi. 
And she said, I sang that song at my dad's funeral. She said, I bet they've met by now. I don't know much. But like Job, I can say with certainty, I know my Redeemer lives. Hallelujah. He is the one who will make all that is wrong right. He is one that will turn all injustice into justly judged order. He is the one into whom all kingdoms will be folded into the kingdom of our God and his Christ. Job didn't know the name of Jesus. He didn't know the story of the cross. He didn't understand Christmas. He didn't know about a virgin birth and a baby that would be born in Bethlehem. He didn't know about one who would be scourged at the hands of the Romans. He didn't know about one who would be suspended between earth and heaven and saved at that moment and that point that if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men into myself and Jesus Christ the center point of all existence is the redeemer that Job through faith understood what we know by sight and by experience and we will experience in greater measure in days to come he said I know there's a redeemer and it's personal and it's powerful for you and for me let's consider this notion number two I I want us to just carry on he said I know that he'll return I know that he'll return Job, again, did not have a a clear perspective as the Apostle Paul has given us that there will be the voice of the archangel and the shout of God and the trumpet blast of God and the dead in Christ rising and those of us who are alive and remaining being caught up to meet the Lord in the air and living with Him forever. Job had none of that. He said, "I, I don't know much, but this I do know. I know that my Redeemer lives and I know that I will see Him with my own eyes. I know that he will stand upon the earth. It's a beautiful promise of return. In fact, from the New Testament, let's look at this. Let, read with me if you will. Do not let your read with me if you will. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If this were not so, would I have told you? that I'm going to prepare a place for you. When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. I've stood at gravesides. I've stood in funeral homes. I've held the hands of families in their living room and given to them this great promise. Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let the struggle of your loss Swallow up your whole existence. Believe in God. Trust in God. Trust in me as well. Because I'm going to go prepare a place and I'm going to come back. What a beautiful promise. Let me give you another promise from the book of Revelation. Read this with me. He who is the faithful witness to all these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's summed up in one word. The word is Maranatha. Maranatha. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. He has the power to keep this promise. He will rapture his church and he will reign forever. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, the psalmist said in Psalm 145. And your dominion endures through all generations. 
I, I, I love the, the thought of, of this next quote. It's from Billy Graham. I want you to see this. The second coming of Christ will be so revolutionary that it will change every aspect of life on this planet. Christ will reign in righteousness. Disease will be arrested. Death will be eradicated. Tears will be wiped away. War will be abolished. Nature will be changed. Man will live as it was originally intended he should live. Glory. He will return. Number three, he said this, I I know that there's a resurrection. It's interesting to me that as we look at Job's words, he said, I'll see him with my own eyes even after my body has been decomposed. After my body has rotted away, I'll see him with my own eyes. Job didn't know much, but he knew somehow that God was going to make this so. God had given him an intimate promise through his relationship in some way and for all of us we need to understand that there is a redeemer I don't know if he's yours or not I don't know if you know that he's returning or not or even care or you're living your life totally devoid of any thought of that process but Jesus Christ is coming again and when he does he will judge all things is he your redeemer are you ready for the return of Christ do you know that there's a resurrection coming that you will live forever somewhere either in the presence of God or away from the presence of God all of us will it's very very simple and you can believe that or not but it doesn't change the fact that it's true I I love the thought of being moved away a departure if you will There are several terms that sum up this notion of a departure in the Hebrew. There's a nautical idea of loosing a ship from the dock and setting sail to another shore. There's a military idea of taking down the tent. We have set up an encampment and now we're taking down this place so that we can move forward. It's a departure. Or or it's a traveler that would put the horse in the barn. I'm, I'm shutting down that travel. Or even a legal mindset. To unshackle a prisoner and set them free. You see, our bodies will return to the elements from which they came. And this body is going to rise. And it will live. And it shall be changed. And these bodies will see God. That's a promise from Scripture. Lastly, I want you to see this. Well, let me. I do want to give you a quote. It's in your notes, I believe. It's from Al Mohler. Read this one with me. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead separates Christianity from all mere religion, whatever its form. Christianity, without the literal, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, is merely one religion among many. Everything in our faith rises and falls on the resurrection. If Christ be not raised, Bible says we are fools to be pitied. Our faith is in vain. Our worship is in vain. But if Christ has been raised from the dead, there is no greater truth. Because it substantiates all of the other truths, all of the other promises. That there is a Redeemer. That there is a glorious return awaiting. That there is a resurrection. And ultimately, I want you to see this, that there is a reunion. Job knew that there was a reunion coming. I will see him. I will see him with my own eyes. He said, and after my body, verse 26, after my body is decayed, yet in my body I will see God. And he said, I will see him for myself. 
Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. And he went on to say that phrase that we said together, I am overwhelmed at the thoughts. I know he brings reunion. (laughs) Job didn't know the name Jesus, but he knew that his Redeemer lived. And he said, I'm going to go see him because I'm his. It was perpetual. I'm going home. I'm going to go to the place where I belong. I'm overwhelmed at the thought of it. Can I tell you this, church family? I am too. I am too. I am overwhelmed at the thought that Jesus Christ saw beyond all of my faults to my need. And redeemed me, paid a ransom, and bought my sin-stained soul. And gave me life and hope and joy. Even in the midst of, of temporary afflictions of this life. Even in the middle of grief. Even in the middle of difficulty. Relational separation. Trouble. Pain. I can look up and like Job say, I don't know much. Somebody might say, hey Scott, why are you going through that? I don't know. But I'm clinging to the unchanging hand of my Redeemer because He has promised through the resurrection, He has promised reunion and return. He's given me hope. I would ask you, is it personal? Can you, like Job, say, I know my Redeemer lives? If you can't this morning, we would love to introduce you to Jesus Christ. We would love to share with you how you can begin a relationship with God by faith. In just a moment, we're going to have prayer partners. We call them encouragers. They're they're not here to counsel you. They're just simply here to walk with you from God's Word. They're, They're here to help you, not hurt you. God doesn't want to ruin your life. He wants to redeem it. He wants to make it all that it is supposed to be. And our encouragers will meet you here. So in just a moment, we're going to sing. And as we stand in a moment and sing, it's just a simple time for you to respond to what Job knew, and I pray to reiterate that you know it too, that you can with confidence say, I know my Redeemer lives, and I shall see Him. He shall stand upon the earth, and I, even after my body is gone, with my own eyes, in my body, will see Him. I'm overwhelmed at the thought. Today, maybe the decision and the need of your life is to unite with this church. We would love for you to join with us. God is doing amazing things as we gather in small groups and as we scatter out into the pine belt and around the globe. And we have an opportunity to be a part of the global mission of God through missions and ministry. Lots of opportunity. Why don't you unite yourself to our church to say, I want to be a part of that. I want to be all in. I want to be a member and, and join in with this family of faith in serving the Lord. Let God have his way during this invitation time. I'm going to pray. Our musicians are going to come. We will then stand and sing. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask that you would help those that are here respond very pointedly and clearly to that which Job declared that he knew, that you are a redeemer, that you are a personal redeemer, and that through the resurrection you bring reunion with the promise of your return. Help those that are here to find you. I pray today would be an appointed day of homecoming for someone who has wandered aimlessly and hopelessly in darkness. Today they would come home. They would trust you by faith and begin a relationship with Jesus. And I pray it for your glory and for their good. In Jesus' name.